Hi, everyone. Welcome to Kremlin File. Hi, Olga. Hi, how are you? Good, 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 good. And today, actually, we have a very special guest, David Frum, who is joining us here on Kremlin File. And we're going to be covering, you know, quite a few okay, issues, the issue of trust, alliances, what is happening in the United States, especially with all the political chaos that we're seeing, uh, especially from, let's say, a European perspective, from my perspective, it looks absolutely insane. Uh, before we do get on to David's uh, talk with David, uh, just to remind everybody, he's a very outspoken political analyst and he's been active in Republican circles and Republican politics since the Reagan campaign, you know, in 1980. And he was also speechwriter and special assistant uh, to George W. President George W. Bush and author of two books that I have read. So <laughs> uh, fantastic. Two books, uh, Trump Trumpocalypse and also Trumpocracy. Okay, as well, along with seven other books, hundreds of articles. I mean, he's also, let's say, in-house writer for The Atlantic as well. So um, this is, let's say, it's a real pleasure to get his ideas on what is happening, his views on what is happening now. Yeah, no, um, he's done an excellent job in you know, calling out all the chaos. I mean, and this is going back to 2016 when Trump was rising within the Republican Party and warning people of the danger that lies ahead, uh, you know, with these extremists who have taken over the Republican Party. And without further ado, thank you, David, so much for joining us. Hi, David. Hi, David. Hello. Hi, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Yeah. I learned so much from you, so I'm I'm glad to have a chance to uh, share ideas. Ah, thank yeah, you. yeah, and and also from all of your your fantastic articles, David. Fantastic is not the word; they're insightful. And in fact, uh, if we can just jump in, because I think we'd like to start today with one of the articles, you know, that you've written for the Atlantic, and it's entitled "The GOP's Betrayal of mm -hmm. Ukraine." And you delve into the obstructionist tactics that are being employed that we're seeing, right, by the Trump MAGA caucus uh, to impede aid, and not only to Ukraine, this also involves Israel and it involves Taiwan, okay, yeah. as well. So I think it's important, David, for our listeners to understand that all of the political gridlock that we're seeing in Washington in this moment is directly, and I, I we believe this all the is directly contributing to the daily loss of lives that we're yeah. seeing in Ukraine right now, right. and it's it's incredible to see, incredible to watch. Uh, where I mean, every day we're getting daily terrorist attacks by Russia, and it's it's taking a devastating toll. Could you talk to us, please, with some of the things that you wrote in your article, some of your insights, and share those with us? Yeah. Well, as you say, it is a it is a heartbreaking moment. We are recording um, on a day when the hinge of fate is truly turning, um, when there is one powerful chance to reverse this this long blockade of aid to Ukraine. Um, that's now many months. Uh, so um, 
the present shortages in Ukraine were predictable in the fall. Um, in uh, September of 2023, President Biden sent a funding request for the U.S. government that included a Ukraine feature. Um, Republicans at that point, to that point, Repub the Republican House and the Republicans in the Senate had been reasonably steadfast um, in supporting the administration and its, its aid to Ukraine. But in September of 23, uh, Republicans said, we want this funding measure to be taken out of the bill to keep the government open. We'll address it in due course. Uh, but for now, let's just keep the government open and not get into a side issue. Why this urgent matter should be a side issue? But the Biden administration agreed, the government was kept open, and it's now funded, I believe, until March. Um, President Biden then sent a supplemental in, on the 20th of October, an aid for, at that point, a request for $106 billion, 61 for Ukraine, 13 for Israel, 14 for the border, uh, money also for Taiwan and Asia-Pacific allies. And uh, that we're now nearing the 120th day uh, yeah. request was sent forward. Um, Republicans said we, we want to attach a more, even more border security elements to this bill. Uh, Senator Lankford from Oklahoma nom uh, negotiated the toughest or border bill. I've been writing about border issues since 1988 when I was a young editorialist at the Wall Street Journal. The toughest border bill ever, ever, certainly since... It's certainly in the Senate. Remember. Yeah. Um, and it, it it was a negotiation where the Republicans got all of their major priorities and the Democrats got none of their major. It was, so it, what Republicans like are one-sided bills. All the things that Democrats normally wanted to build, the Democrats said, no, okay, we'll give it, we'll do it entirely your way. Um, and in, in exchange, we want aid for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. So the deal was done, and then the Republicans, who got everything they asked for, then sabotaged their own deal because they had various excuses, but it wasn't about the border at all. It was about Trump wanting border chaos, but it was also about this, this hostility to Ukraine and important parts of the Republican coalition. Um, so now we are at a moment where, with the border deal on pause, uh, Republicans in the Senate, the Friends of Ukraine, backed by Democrats, are proposing a clean emergency aid bill. Or Ukraine, Israel, and and Taiwan, uh, no border element at all. Okay, you don't want you don't, you didn't like the border bill that met all of your own specifications. Let's just fund our allies, and and that again is running into trouble. It is still I haven't given up hope it will yet pass the Senate. It, it needs sixty. Um, that's another odd thing about American life. Um, mm. It had fifty eight, I believe, yesterday. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there are a few more votes available, so it should be able to clear 60 in the Senate. And if it does, then it goes on to the House. Uh, I mean, I deal with Ukraine on a daily basis. And I mean, what is happening is heartbreaking. It's infuriating. Um, you know, I I mean, it's Russia is using this opportunity to escalate their bombardment of all cities across Ukraine. Yeah. And I mean, and now it's happening in the middle of the night, during early hours of the morning, during uh, work hours. And I mean, this is just it's terrorizing while yeah. Republicans here are obstructing. Now, you mentioned just now you don't think this was about the border. Do you really think that there are a set of uh, Republicans, extremist faction in the party who is doing everything they can to tank the aid to Ukraine? Yes. Well, let's subdivide them into two groups. I think there is a um, small number of elected Republicans, maybe five in the Senate, maybe 
two dozen in the House who affirmatively share the Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump uh, mm. pro-Putin view of the world. Mm. Um, on their own, that group would be quite a small minority. But because um, of fear of Trump, the, so the number who I agree with Trump on this issue is, is I think, relatively small. But fear of Trump has caused many uh, Republicans who might otherwise have followed a traditional Republican foreign policy of defending in endangered democracies abroad to, to fall into line, not because they are hostile to Ukraine, but because they are deferential to Trump. And I, I include here um, Speaker Johnson, Speaker Mike Johnson. I, I think in, um, if the Republican Party had a healthier leadership right now, Johnson would be more, would be acting more like a normal Republican. But he is enthralled to Trump. He is a follower. He is a believer. And he's also afraid of him. And so and, and for Trump, um, delivering Ukraine to Putin is a major priority. We can speculate about why, but it, maybe it doesn't even matter why. We, we can just see the outcome. We can see the push, which is um, to deliver this war to Russia on Russia's terms. And how significant, David, uh, and how dangerous is it for U.S. security, you no know, national security issues, right, and stance, all of this, let's say, this having so much that Putin and and the Russians have so much pull on Trump yeah. and on the party itself. Well, the the danger uh, it, it is a tremendously dangerous thing to have the likely the presumptive Republican nominee past president of the United States who has this sinister and mysterious connection and obligation to to Putin and the harm to the America and the world. I think is summed up by this um, at the shortly after the um, Hamas attack on Israel. Uh, President Biden gave a statement in which he said, to those who are thinking of taking advantage of the situation, I have one word of advice, don't. That is an, that is an exercise in credibility. The United States says don't, and people don't, because they know the United States can make its word good. Um, that credibility is like credit in a financial market. It's, it's a way of meeting obligations without actually having to produce cash for every transaction. Military force is cash. I mean, back of the credit is always cash. If you don't have cash, you won't have credit. But if you have good credit, you don't need to produce cash all the time. You don't have to carry it around for you. You don't have to fight. You don't have to fight. Uh, the president yeah. says, don't do this. People don't do it. And there's no fight. Um, so what is happening in Ukraine is the destruction of American credit. Um, th uh, that if Ukraine prevailed, the next time an American president said, don't, people would understand, okay. Don't <laughs> stand down, stand down. America's word is good. They and we don't. No one's going to fight. Mm -hmm. American president said, "Don't." But next time they will say, "You know what? Let's let's keep pushing because the American president say don't." And then uh, under the influence, under the thrall of this MAGA crowd, um, American interests are subordinated to Trump's personal interests, and so maybe maybe we can get away with it. Let's try and let's ignore the don't. And it's very dangerous when the world gets the idea that. It can ignore an American president who says don't. Yeah. Deterrence. Yeah, Deterrence. no, a hundred percent. Talking about uh, yeah. No, I'm saying a hundred percent that someone, you know, who came from the Soviet Union, I mean, you know, America's strength was recognized around the world and everyone knew not to cross America. And now you have just, you know, I mean, everything from uh, you know, 
countries to two small militias who are challenging America's power. And this all has to do with the instability that's being caused in Washington by, you know, this uh, faction of the Republican extremists who are trying to do everything to undermine our credibility, our, you know, uh, uh, allies, our uh, strategic partnerships. I mean, it's it's devastating. Go ahead, Monique. No, it's not. This is not yeah. and strength. One more thing that needs to be said here. Yeah. Um, when America defends and battles democracies abroad, America becomes a better democracy at home. You know, one of the things mm-hmm. that are I, I just wrote a long article about Woodrow Wilson for the Atlantic. Yeah. And I was just going to mention it. <laughs> a little bit of a byway for our purposes here, but one, one of the yeah. things to bear in mind is before the United States became a great power. Um, yes, we had uh, an elected government, but we were in many ways a repressive society here at home. Um, and uh, historians point out that much of the inspiration for the Nazi Nuremberg laws against the Jews in the 1930s, this is, you know, they would Jews can't sit on a park bench, they can't go do, it was drawn from practices in the American South. That in the struggle to defend democracy, first against the Nazis and then against the Soviets, we became more of a democracy. We became a more egalitarian, more liberal society. And uh, that when a, a foreign, an authoritarian aggressor attacks a country and the United States steps up, we start saying, well, why are we doing this? Well, because we believe in the right of people to govern ourselves. Well, wh- what about here at home? Well, I guess you make a good point. I guess we also have to clean up our act at home. And so um, our support for democracy abroad has been a tremendous infusion of commitment to our democracy at home. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why the Tucker Carlson's of this world. I mean, Trump has his own probably pretty shabby reasons for his infatuation with, with Putin. But the Tucker Carlson's of this world understand that the drive to defend allied democracies also feeds back into a constant purification of our own democracy. Are you making good on the, on, uh, you say, you know, you're saying this, you know, when President Kennedy um, gave his first big speech about Vietnam in 1962. It was at a time of battle over civil rights. And President Kennedy said, how do I ask a black man to defend freedom in Southeast Asia if that man is not free at home? Powerful question. So we had to become more free at home. Um, and th- if you hate those changes at home, then you hate the commitment to the world because the two it constantly interact. And, and we've seen this inside, you know, Ukraine. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I think this story is so inspiring um, to so many of us out here, is that here is a society that inherited all these troubles from the former Soviet Union, that had authoritarianism, that had corruption, that had political assassination, and under uh, under the uh, expressed a desire to join Europe, was attacked. And out of that process, it's redefined itself. Uh, it's come to terms with its history. It's come to terms with its political culture. Um, there's much less tolerance for corruption. There's much more tolerance yep. for authoritarianism. Um, that Ukraine, in fighting to become Europe, has become European. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's and a lot more. Go ahead, Elena. Go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. No, there's a lot more attention. Also, I mean, for the first time since you know, I've been I've been here for 28 years, 30 years in the EU. And for the very first time, we're talking about what you pulled out also, and you mentioned in you know, and the article that we're talking about is Uncancel Woodrow Wilson, okay? That is a fabulous article. Please go and read it. 
um, all about Wilsonian values and, you know, that kind of thing. But for the very first time in Europe, we're talking about collective security for the very, very first time. I mean, here, just to, to quote, right, one of the things that you put in um, that, let's say, what most people stop at is this about Wilson, the world must be safe, made safe for democracy. But there's more to it is what you put in. It said the menace to peace and freedom, Wilson saw, lies in the existence of autocratic governments backed by organized force, which is controlled wholly by their will, not by the will of their people. And this Ukraine is showing us, right? Yeah. This is what, okay, uh, what is going on. So this, um, I, I just thought this was, you know, it resonated completely, completely. And as I said, European collective security has become now an issue and they're talking openly about it. Unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, let's say, it's because the United States has stepped back or we're seeing the chaos. It hasn't stepped back yet, but at the same time, we have to be prepared if you know something does happen. I mean, it's it's only for our own benefit, no, collectively. We, we suffered in, in Europe and then the larger European world of North America, disaster after disaster, as country said, um, we're going to try to be secure by having a bigger army than our next neighbor. And the next neighbor said, oh yeah? Well, we're going to try to be secure by having a bigger army than you. Um, yeah. And and this competition of one against the other led to some of the most terrible catastrophes in the history of the world. And after 1945, uh, under US leadership, well, what if instead of thinking of our security as competitive, what if we thought of it as shared? And that Germany doesn't become more secure if France is less secure. Germany actually, when France is more secure, Germany is also more secure. Uh, when Germany is more secure, Poland is also secure. And we do this collectively. It's all backed because the United States has that little bit of distance and it's, it's larger and richer. Um, but it's all in this integrated system where um, we get security by giving security. And that was a very novel yeah. idea. It and was revolutionary. It was well, a revolutionary thing in World War One. you know? Profoundly counterintuitive. And and so yeah. that that that's one of the things that we're discovering in Ukraine is if we if the Western world collectively through its money and technology can give security to Ukraine, it gets security. Um, and not just the Western world, but democracies in Asia. I mean, Taiwan will be more secure. Um, everyone who everyone who faces a, a Guyana, as you mentioned at the beginning, everyone who faces a bully will be more secure. If, you can, if Ukraine wins, and everyone who faces a bully will be less secure if Ukraine loses. Mm. Absolutely. You just mentioned... Oh, uh, go ahead, Olga. Go. No, absolutely. And you see the slow walking, you know, even with the weapons deliveries and which system should be delivered or not. Um, uh, the Russians did become more entrenched in the front lines, and you see all the dictators around the globe challenging i mean for maduro to actually you know turn around and say i'm gonna annex parts of guyana i mean this wouldn't mm -hmm. have happened if yeah. we had you know yeah. uh, collectively showed strength at the beginning of russia's full-scale invasion and yeah. frankly we can go back to russia's initial invasion of ukraine in 2014. well there's a lot to criticize about the response in, in 2014. um my understanding of what happened in 2014 was um, then President Obama first wanted to avoid trouble and conflict anyway. And second, he was very fixated on getting his nuclear deal 
uh, with Iran and Russia, he regarded as a partner mm -hmm. in that effort. Um, and so he didn't want to do anything that would jinx uh, the partnership he sought with Russia against uh, to, to encourage Iran to sign this contract that they signed but didn't honor. Um, and so he let he let Crimea go, um, and not just Crimea, but um, uh, east, eastern parts of Ukraine. And and then uh, in the next year, um, he drew his red line in Syria, and that was overstepped. Um, and the Russians got a message about that, and he made a series of decisions that encouraged um, that, that encouraged Russians to, to test what were what were the limits. And then they intervened in an American election in 2016, and that paid off for them. So you could you could imagine that all of this would go to a dictator's head and make Putin think there are no no limits. Um, so that's that's very alarming. Yeah. Do you think that it's the same thing with with Taiwan and China? Uh, that the U.S. let's say that China is watching what the yeah. U.S. will be doing and what it's doing, and how far away are we from let's say a possible something that could grow even more unstable in that part of the world and in, in the Indo-Pacific? Well, without I mean I'm, I don't I'm don't follow Chinese politics as closely as okay. I follow Korean politics, so without overstepping it, um, the good and bad news about China is I think they're fundamentally more rational player. Uh, than the post-Soviet Russian state. Um, and they are a much more successful society and their leadership is much more concerned to protect what they have uh, rather than to take crazy gambles. Um, I also think there's, there is, um, uh, yeah, that they are, I think they also have um, a less isolated leadership. And so they're more aware of the social instability within their own state and the risks. Mm -hmm. It's a dangerous thing for an authoritarian state to go to war. Um, because uh, democracies can afford to lose. Um, I mean, not not an existential defeat, but you know, they, democracies lose wars and make mistakes. And then you know, the United States uh, comes out of Vietnam and it reforms its military and gets a much more effective military after, after losing that. Because in the end, the government always has consent, and and you can also fire a president and get a new president, or fire the prime minister and get a new prime minister, and you can do this kind of renewal through replacement that isn't an option in an authoritarian system. Um, but again and again, when, when authoritarian regimes, and that's one of the things that the Russians have in mind, when Argentina attacked the Falklands, when um, the Greek colonels attacked Cyprus in 1974, if you don't win, you lose power. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the Chinese authorities have that history in mind. So I just think they're they're just generally more prudent people um, than, than the Russians. And of course, Taiwan is a harder project because how would the Ukraine war have gone if, in addition to everything that was true about Ukraine, there was also a hundred miles of open water uh, between Ukraine and Russia? <laughs> uh, that that would make the whole the project even more challenging. So, you, um, so I'm really hopeful that we. And I I don't want to be pessimist. I have not given up hope that the Chinese can be made to see that they can have. Um, even within their authoritarian, a better future for their authoritarian state in a peaceful world than in a world of conflict. I'm sorry. It's interesting because, um, you know, I, I do view China as a threat, but I also think there's way more leverage. And I've always said this because with Russia, they, I mean, uh, simply export, you know, oil and terrorism and instability and chaos. With China, I, there's not one household in this world that doesn't have like, you know, 
the majority made in China. So, I mean, we definitely have more leverage over them, which makes them a less unstable actor. So I, I agree with that perception, although I do think, you know, that they will take advantage and team up with Russia, even though people have it confused. They think, you know, there's some grand partnership, but the Chinese and, you know, Russians going back to Soviet days and, you know, I mean, yeah. it's something they've always been distrustful of each other. They're always looking over each other's shoulders to see who might invade and, and, you know, take territory from the other. So even though they do align to go against the United States, they necessarily, China won't 100% commit to, you know, being a full uh, thuggish regime with Russia to, you know, overthrow international order. Well, this is, again, a strength of democratic systems that doesn't get appreciated enough. Non-democratic mm-hmm. regimes can never trust each other, even when they cooperate. Um, whereas, you know, you, you walk into um, the uh, a base of any NATO power, and you see soldiers from every country. Um, and tra- training missions, supply missions, um, mm-hmm. and there's just there's a level of sharing, there's a level of trust because the, the values are so deeply shared. And so you know you 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 bring an uh, an officer from the Italian army into uh, you know a, um, wherever the Germans or the Canadians or the Americans are training, and they they you know there are obviously important cultural differences, but basically they get each other and they know they have nothing to fear from each other. Um, and, and intelligence sharing proceeds in a very high level way because these are these are societies of trust. Um, whereas I don't think that kind of situation prevails between the Chinese and Russians. They do not trust each other. They don't share. Um, they can't integrate. And one of the things we've learned from the Ukraine war is um, we need to redouble our efforts in the NATO armies to make sure we're all using the same stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if, uh, the Italians run low on bullets that they can take crates mm-hmm. of bullets from any day and they're, they're, they're going to be the same, um, yeah. you it, people, and this, that's what the, with the new fighters, they're, we're all flying for once the same plane. And so you, you, you train on a Danish airframe, uh, and you can, if necessary, get behind the controls of a t- Portuguese plane. Yes. Charles Michel talked about, I think this was about, about a month ago. He presented you know, the new project for the European um, European procurement and all of that kind of thing. I think they're going towards that that idea. Should have happened a long time ago. Um, yeah. As I, I keep saying through uh, uh, this thing, um, yesterday was best. Today is good. Tomorrow will be worse. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, very true. And, you know, it, it it's sad because now you see, you know, with Russia's full-scale assault against Ukraine, um, now Europe is also waking up to, you know, the fact that uh, they need to secure. And you see all these uh, partnerships. The Baltics just, you know, agree to uh, do a joint defense line and build bunkers to protect from a potential invasion of Russia, which Russia has threatened on numerous occasions. And it's interesting to touch on Trump. He specifically, since 2016, since, you know, well, since he became public, you know, and then political, um, he specifically attacked these alliances. And I mean, he does everything to undermine our strategic alliances. He does everything I mean, just in general, you see the difference and to to make our allies worried, because right now what is happening in, you know, the uh, Congress, this is 
a direct result of Trump because he has intervened and he has been calling, uh, you know, Congress, uh, House members and Senate members to tell them do not vote for this. What is happening as a result? You have our NATO allies who are now scrambling and worried what will happen if Trump gets back into power. Will the United States be a, you know, uh, a partner in the case there is a potential invasion in a further invasion in Europe? You know, and this is extremely dangerous what is happening with this. Yeah. Well, the United States is needed everywhere. So, um, you know, with with these rockets that are being fired at shipping in the Red Sea, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you could say uh, every country, Poland, Denmark, you all have to protect, protect your trade um, with your Navy. Then there's no supply chain because what, what do you mean my trade? Uh, the product I sell is made up of components from so many other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the idea we've had since 1945 is, um, you know, we have these alliances anchored by the United States, and they protect everybody's shipping, um, including, by the way, the shipping of people we don't like. We protect the Chinese shipping um, because we don't need a Chinese Navy in the in the Red Sea protecting Chinese shipping. You know, it's uh, that people say the United States. This is the thing that Donald Trump can never un- understand is that a world system anchored on American power is not um is a gift. The United States gets a lot out of that too. Um, th- th- these are generous acts, but they are not entirely other regarding acts. They they are self regarding acts, and uh, you know Americans get all kinds of advantages from I mean, in a way that's sort of invisible to us. Uh, you go to Thailand, you buy something in a shop, and you're ripped off. Uh, you call Visa, and they fix it. Um, no. <laughs> And you know, so behind you in the shop is Visa. Behind Visa is the international payment system. Behind the payment system is the Federal Reserve. Behind the Federal Reserve is the U.S. military. Behind the U.S. military is the U.S. military force. Behind the U.S. nuclear force. Behind that is the president. And all of that means that when you, if you get cheated in a restaurant or shop in Thailand, it gets fixed. Just like with the Department of Justice. I mean, my goodness, I get so excited every time I see a new indictment drop. And I mean, our indictments, you know, against international players is like a gold standard. I mean, they're so detailed. They are weighed so heavily. I mean, and I'm sorry not to, you know, to to insult friends, but like a French court system will not be mm-hmm. as trusted as an American court system because mm-hmm. America has that gold standard and, you know, the balance to follow the facts, to prosecute on based on evidence, not just because, you know, they want to do it, you know, and even now our indictments are weighed very heavily across um, the world. So, I mean, it's, yeah, Yeah. no, No, I remember an Italian case where um, this person was sanctioned in the United States. And upon the strength of that, that's when he was arrested. And he was. So, I mean, this is, you know, that you're absolutely right, Olga. No, and, uh, David is absolutely right. That, yeah, that the Department of Defense, uh, Defense and Justice and Treasury Department, that they all hold a very strong, you know, uh, position in global security. And that's um, why the son of the serving president is in real danger of going to prison for tax fraud, um, because when the system is operating as it should and as it has done, except during the Trump presidency, you know, mm. the son of the president is uh, has as much duty to break the, to obey the law and has as much to fear from breaking the law as anybody else. Yes. Mm. Speaking of which, David, <laughs> let's play a little 
let's hop, uh, let's jump a little bit into the future. Uh, what do you think are Trump's chances of getting in? I know um, you probably answered this question a hundred times. And then so if just, he does, God forbid, what would be the nature of his White House? Like, how do you see yeah, so those right? are kind of a White House? Let's separate the two questions. So yeah. I, I during the Trump presidency, I used to make this joke that we sh- that we should finance absurd fake polls of non-existent things like um, to test by central Biden. So we say, what do you think of President Trump's plan to prohibit camel imports from the Middle East? And and the answer would be 47 percent in favor, 53 percent against. Like because whatever whatever the question was, blah, 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 Trump, <laughs> blah, 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 47 percent. Yes. 53 percent. No. Um, so. That's my operating hypothesis and anything to do with Trump is uh, he, you know, in 2016, he got 46 and a smidgen of the vote. He lost the popular vote by 3 million. In 2020, he got 46 and uh, 46 points seven or eight, I forget, um, but still under 47, but closer and lost by 7 million votes. So, he, you know, uh, the hardcore MAGA base is probably not nearly as big as that, but you take the hardcore MAGA base, you put the people who are really committed to voting Republican or against a Democratic nominee, you get to 46, 47 percent. And then if you have an attractive Republican, they can take it a little higher than that. They can then make inroads into the other coalition. But Trump has never tried that and has no ability to do, to do that. Um, you know, again and again, I, I've spoken to so many of my I've w- watched these focus groups where they, they talk to people who are former Republicans um, mm-hmm. and they said, what can Donald Trump do to get your vote back? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. I'm, I'm locked in. Sure. <laughs> Nothing. He did. He's done enough. You're welcome. Um, so I think it, it, the, the the danger to Biden is not that Trump is going to get more of the vote than he got the last two times. The danger is that the Democratic vote is always more um, heterogeneous, uh, more internally divided. Uh, it's a, it's a bigger but sloppier coalition, and it's possible that pieces can be peeled away. And so. Um, there there's a lot of effort to stand up third party challenges. Um, and if those efforts are, if they flourish, if they're successful, that they could peel off the point or two that then can tip it, the election to the point where the Republican advantage in the electoral college can manifest itself. So that takes us to your question, what does a Trump presidency look like? So now imagine this, it's um, January 2025, Donald Trump got his usual 46% of the vote, but because of Bobby Kennedy Jr. or Joe Manchin or whatever, Biden slipped to 48. And so Trump is back in the presidency with 3 million votes, fewer than Biden, but an electoral college majority. And he's got a bare majority in one or even two houses of Congress, but probably not two, probably just one. And he then says, okay, my first order of business is shutting down the Justice Department, pardoning myself for all these crimes, um, and ordering the military to suppress protests. Like, does that just happen? I don't think that just happens. I sounds think, like I Russia. Think, no, it oh. does. It, it sounds like Russia. If is the in Russia, the if, if when the generals resign, the president can throw them out the window and murder mm-hmm. them. In mm-hmm. the United States. So far, the president can't. So you're going to have resignations. You're going to have chaos. You're going to have people in the streets. You're going to have. Um, if if the Republicans have the Senate, but not the House, uh, you have no funding bills. Uh, it's pretty hard to see if the Republicans have the Senate, but one of the senators is Lisa Murkowski. It's hard to see how Trump gets people confirmed. Hmm. Uh, it, it, it looks like a heart attack at the center of American government. It, it's not an effective. I mean, I think Trump is such an agent of chaos. And now the forces 
opposed to Trump understand they are the stronger half of uh, the American political system. There, there are more who don't like him than there are those who do. And more disorganized, more different one from another, you know, more for many different reasons. Some people don't like him because they're on the far left. Some people don't like him because they're on the Romney, Reagan, McCain. Uh, right. center right. Hard for us to cooperate with each other. Um, but we all have this one thing in common, which was we we don't want this. And that and we know that strength now. And it will be very hard for Trump to do to the government what I think he wants to do, which is shut down its ability to enforce the law against him and his family. Hmm. So you hear everyone, uh, even though, you know, maybe it's not going to be a complete overthrow of the American government, but just do your Chaos. due diligence and yeah. go vote and 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 let's prevent this mess from yeah. <laughs> from even happening because we don't want more chaos because with each uh, domestic chaos, our dictators, uh, I mean, dictators around the globe are are watching this and, you know, and using it against us. I wanted to quickly ask a question. So um, back in October, or maybe it was after when the House came back in session, um, Republicans decided to mix the border bill with um, Ukraine uh, aid and uh, the weapons package. How dangerous is it? When I saw this, I mean, I just shook my head because for, you know, ever, we have so many enemies around the globe who are seeking every kind of vulnerability they can find, um, you know, in the United States to use mm. against us. And here you have this uh, these group of Republicans who decided that they want to mix it with foreign policy, a domestic policy. This is laying our hands out to our enemies. They know, aha, the border is a huge issue. And at the same time, you know, uh, if nothing gets done on the border, then uh, this affects U.S. foreign policy. How dangerous is that precedent to mix the two, a domestic and a national security and foreign policy together? Look, if we're dealing with good people of good faith, um, it, it wouldn't matter how we did it. Um, you know, should Israel aid be bundled with Ukraine aid? Well, they're, they're quite different, actually. Is, uh, Ukraine needs material. Israel needs cash. They're, they're like in, in a world of honest politics and the coalitions are slightly different. Some people who are pro-Ukraine are less pro-Israel, vice versa. In a world of honest politics, you might say, you know, well, let's do them separately and let's have one majority for Israel and a slightly different shaped majority for Ukraine and a slightly different majority again for Taiwan um, and a slightly different shaped majority for the border um, because all of these things are good things that need to happen. Um, but mm -hmm. but the problem is it's been bad faith um, that the point is not should we join the border to Ukraine? The point is people want to sabotage the border in Ukraine and they're looking for reasons to do it. So if, if um, right now we're dealing with uh, President Nikki Haley, I would have no opinion on how these bills should be staggered uh, because you think, okay, you know, the, the administration for its own reasons wants to do the border together or separate, fine, because there are majorities for all of these things. Um, mm. Slightly different shape, but there are majorities for all of them. Uh, so let's. So I don't care what sequence we do them all in. I don't care you know, what, how the bills are bundled. Um, just do them all. Uh, do them all. And and if you had good faith operatives, yeah, okay. We, we we all have our political imperatives. So Bernie Sanders will be there for the Ukraine bill, but not for the Israel bill. Um, right. okay, got it. Fine. Um, you know, other people will be there for the Israel bill and not for the Ukraine bill. Fine. Uh, we, we've got majorities for it all. As long as it gets done. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, my last question um, is, 
I mean, we've seen the Republican Party be hijacked by extremists and by um, Trump over the past several years. Trump temporarily, you know, started dying out, but got uh, pretty much, um, you know, brought back as as their their leader um, over the past year. Um, how do you ever see the Republican Party ever coming back? Because the United States needs, you know, two, at least two viable parties. I mean, we can't function with just one party, but this Republican Party, I mean, is not recognizable to anyone and it's really been hijacked. What do you see for, you know, in the future? Well, I, I worry all around the world. We've seen parties of the center right drift mm-hmm. toward reactionary authoritarianism. This is not a uniquely American problem. No. So, so you, you know, if, if you're a French voter, you've got, you know, a choice between Macron with all of Macron's problems, but who's recognizably a responsible person, and then radically unacceptable alternatives. Um, if you're an Italian voter, from the, back in the old days in Italy, you had the, the Christian Democrats who are corrupt and sloppy and lazy, and the communists who are unacceptable. Um, and so we are moving into a world like that, where we, um, the parties of the center-right are being influenced by this kind of extremist politics. Um, and I don't know there's going to be a uniquely American solution here. I think it, this is going to be all over the democratic world is that we have to rediscover. Um, uh, and people, you know, I, I'm still a pretty conservative person. I'm, I, um, I'm very disgusted with the Republican party as it exists today, but you know, you, uh, you know, ask me a question, uh, like, uh, we, we need to, um, build a new highway. Would we do better to have the government do it or a public-private partnership with the, the profit motive? I, you know, I'm for the, that. Uh, you know, uh, we, we've we got funding gaps between what the government spends and what the government taxes. How, well, I'd say let's keep the taxes where they are and bring the spending into order with the time. That, that Those would be all my Romney-like preferences. But right now, there's the, the, that um, there isn't a Romney. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, you know, uh, normal things I'm not crazy about versus the utterly unacceptable. And and in a choice between normal things I'm not crazy about and the utterly unacceptable, you have to go with the former, not the latter. Yeah, yeah. Do you think no, in, I hear you. like in a, you know several election cycles, people will wake up and start pushing these extremists out and moving like, well, the party, or you think has to happen on a global scale where, yeah. you know, everything has to go more center? I think this future is not going to look like the past. I don't think we're going to have, again, we're, after the financial crisis, after Trump, um, it's going to be um, it's going to be a different kind of politics than it was before the financial crisis and before Trump. I, I, so we, we, as you say, we need competitive parties. We need to rediscover um, what conservative politics can look like that's constructive and helpful, and you know. Uh, uh, culturally modern and economically inclusive and environmentally responsible. What does that conservatism look like? We have to build it, but I don't think we're turning back the clock. I think we have to build something new. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, even here, you you mentioned David about politics here in Europe. We've been at uh, even here where I am. I mean, we had came out of a period where uh, the politics were extreme, yeah. And right now we're trying to find some sort of balance. Uh, it's it's It'll be right-winged, and it'll be right-winged for the next 10 years. Uh, all we don't want is to, let's say, uh, put in jeopardy those alliances and those relationships that you no know, benefit our democracies in general. 
and our relationships and general national security interests, which are no fundamental. That's all we're asking. It's not, you know, I agree with you. I think there is going to be a completely different character, different parties that are coming out. Mm -hmm. We need it. Let's hope we get from uh, here to there without too much suffering. Yeah, yeah, we we definitely hopefully. need to hopefully. move in the right direction. But I feel like, you know, things in, even if you look at history, it's always like the pendulum. It swings one way to the extreme and then eventually makes its way back to, you know, the middle. Hopefully we'll yeah. see it soon enough. Hopefully without too much damage. Too much damage. Exactly. Thank That's you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you for this. Thank it's you, been Daniel. Very insightful. We will add um all the your recent articles on our show notes so people can read them. Mm-hmm. I encourage everyone to read it. I mean, it's uh, definitely excellent points that were being made. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Thanks. Hi, everybody. If you enjoyed our podcast and would like to help us with our independent work, subscribe to Kremlin File on Substack or YouTube. Kremlin File is hosted by Olga Lautner and me, Monique Kamara. Production and theme music by Oreste Kamara. Please don't forget to visit our Substack and write to us with your comments or questions which we'll address in our weekly episodes. Thanks for listening to Kremlin File.